summer is coming to an end. Even though it, it doesn't feel like it, I guess officially tomorrow summer is over. I was going to wear my white pants today. I'm supposed to wear white. Uh, don't have any white pants, but uh, it is over. But one of the things that uh, I've noticed about the summer is just the, the great movies there have, have been to pick from. It's always great to go into the movie theater on a hot summer day. You know, it's 90 to 105 degrees outside. You go in where it's dark and it's nice and cool and you can eat. Uh, you've got to get the large like bucket of popcorn with extra butter, right? That's, that's good go. for you. And uh, just to be able to enjoy some summer movies. And uh, I, I saw a couple of them that I, I thought about a lot. Um, I just saw one um, just this past weekend that has has uh, stayed with me. I think we'll continue to do so. But one of them I saw several weeks ago was uh, Jobs. It's the movie about Steve Jobs. And being a complete Apple um, fan and nerd, uh, I had to go. Somebody say amen. Oh, hey. I, uh, I definitely needed to go and watch this movie. And, and it was, uh, I had read at least uh, most of the, the Jobs, uh, the biography of Jobs before this, um, and so I was just captivated by the movie. The, the whole story of Apple is something that uh, I think is, is a great story and needs to, to get out there. But as I was watching this and, and just uh, watching Ashton Kutcher play Steve Jobs and just to bring out what has been described as his personality, uh, one of the things that they showed throughout the movie is how Apple as a company and really as an idea has changed the world. I don't know if you have an iPhone with you in here, uh, or an iPad, or you have used Apple products in, in any particular way, but Apple is pervasive throughout the world, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, and the Apple design has changed the way that we think about technology and data, relationships, pretty much everything that we can think of has been touched by Apple. And so there's no doubt that it has changed the world, whether that's a positive or a negative in your eyes. But one of the things that they showed about Steve Jobs, even in the midst of him creating something that was going to change the world, it showed the dark side of Steve Jobs. It showed the self-absorption. It showed the, the ego that was there. It, it showed the, the way that he mistreated other people as he was getting to the top of the technology world, he stepped on a lot of people. And a lot of people have criticized the movie, saying, uh, even Steve Wozniak has criticized it, saying, well, it's not really the way it happened. But no one has denied that that's the way he treated people, even his own family. And that seems to be central in our world, doesn't it? Especially with people who have done great things. This past week, we had a new word uh, introduced, at least into common uh, vernacular, twerking. And uh, if you look it up in the Urban Dictionary, you'll find a variety of definitions that are there. We had a very notable uh, person, Miley Cyrus, who... Uh, <laughs> I hear more. <laughs> don't worry, I don't have that video. <laughs> Although... It has played over and over and over again on pretty much every news channel, and it's been analyzed from every different direction. And it, it really comes down to this. 
Uh, you have an individual, much like Steve Jobs and others, who are doing everything they can to either boost sales or get notoriety or become popular and are willing to do deplorable things just to be able to have people talk about them. And if we look throughout our culture, we look throughout our world, we see this happening day after day. There are talks today about Syria. Back yesterday, the president made an announcement about his determination and his willingness and his sense of action about uh, doing some punitive things to the president of Syria uh, because of some terrible things that he has done. We're talking about an egomaniac who was willing to gas children so that he could stay in power. The world is full of them. And this world has always been full of them. Jesus introduced a whole new concept, a counter-cultural concept that God wants us to know in our lives, that, that God has designed us to be able to uh, bring into our lives and to bring into our world. And it's this word humility. It's not just the word humility. It is the practice. Uh, it's not just a philosophy. It's not just an ideal for the world. It is something that we are to live out within our lives as well as without our lives. Jesus gets into this topic of humility as he talks to uh, the people that are gathered around the table. Uh, he's invited by this uh, Pharisee uh, to come over for dinner. And this wasn't something because they were friends or the Pharisee didn't invite him over because he thought, wow, people are going to think I'm popular if I have Jesus come over to my house for dinner. No, as Luke describes, all eyes are on Jesus. Jesus has really ticked off quite a few of them. And they're looking for a way to be able to trap him, to get him to say something that's going to uh, open up the door for them to be able to point to him and say, okay, well, you've heard what we've been saying about him, and now you can hear it for yourself. This is what Jesus has said. He is a revolutionary. He is uh, uh, against our government. He's against our religion. He's even against God. And yet Jesus knew what he was walking into when he went to the Pharisee's house that day. And as he sits down at the table, and I, I love the way that, that Luke uh, describes this, on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Their eyes were on Jesus to see what he would do, to see what he would say. And then in verse 7, when he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, and, and that's deliberate, Luke has told us that it wasn't the uh, host of this party. It wasn't uh, a wedding planner or anything like that that chose places for people to sit. The guests chose where they were going to sit. He told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit down at the most important place. And as he looked at this crowd, he, he realized that all of these guys who were sitting around the table were, were trying to sit in the most impressive place. When they walked in the room, they did a bit of analysis, and maybe it was not a deliberate, intentional analysis of where I need to sit. It was really coming out of their sense of ego and their sense of pride and their, their want of recognition that people would look and say, well, the person there sitting next to Joe, the, the leader of our synagogue and the leader of our, our group of Pharisees, he's got to be important. I mean, he's sitting right next to, to the leader. And he must be the second in command, or he must know a lot, or be pretty impressive to be able to sit there. And so everyone was jockeying for a position. Jesus encountered this all the time with them. 
He also encountered it with his own disciples. Remember James and John and the conversation they get into, uh, and, and Peter does this all the time too, that, well, I want to be at the right hand. I don't want to be at the right hand of you, but I also want to be at the right hand of God the Father. And, and uh, who is it that's going to be the leader? Jesus, is it going to be me? Is it going to be my brother? There's always this conversation about getting into the right position. It's about esteem and creating your own sense of self-esteem and your, your own sense of arrogance and, and this way of being bombastic in life that, that you would be the one that everybody looks to and says, wow, that person has a lot of power. And so Jesus gets into this very practical issue at the table. When you come into the room, don't go to the head of the table. Don't go to the leader's table. Go sit at the kid's table. Go sit down, and that, it's more fun there, right? Go sit down at the end of the table where no one's going to think that you're important or no one's going to think that you're at the right hand of power. Just quietly go and take your place because it's better if you go down there and then the, the, uh, the host calls you and says, hey, why don't you come sit next to me? It's a lot better to do that than, you know, to be moved up rather than sitting there and being embarrassed and humiliated because you're at the wrong spot. You don't belong here. You belong at the end. So Jesus is teaching them about pride, arrogance. And more than that, he's teaching them about humility, about how they were to live their lives out. The second part of this parable, and, and really before Jesus gets to that, he, he says, uh, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And really he's talking about them talking about us too. But he mentions to them, whoever exalts themselves, they're going to be humble and those who humble themselves, they are the ones who will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Don't invite all the people that you are expected to invite. Instead, go out and invite the people that uh, no one would expect to come to your party. Invite the, the people who are sick. Invite the crippled and Invite those who've been forgotten and pushed aside in the world. And invite everyone that is not in your normal invitation list. And invite them to come and sit at the table. And he says to them, do this because they can't repay you. There's just no way they can repay you. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the Lord. That's where you get your true reward. And so Jesus was teaching them a very important principle. Now the disciples would hear this as well, and they would struggle with it. I mean, we see at the, at the Last Supper, as Jesus is, is getting ready to take, take a very big next step the next day. He is in this intimate time with them where they're passing the bread and they're passing the cup and they're celebrating Passover and they're, they're doing all of this together. And in the midst of that, he knows that they're having these struggles with each other about their own positions and about pride. And of course, he can look across and see that, that Judas is getting ready to betray him. And he, he can look in the eyes of the disciples and, and even look in Peter's eyes and understand that you still haven't conquered this whole ego thing. You still have a problem. We realize we have a problem as well. There's a, a quote that I, I found from Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm not sure how quote-worthy he is. But it says, 
As soon as enough people give you enough compliments and you're wielding more power than you've ever had in your life, it's not that you become arrogant or become rude to people, but you get a false sense of your own importance and what you've accomplished. You actually think you've altered the course of history. Have you ever been there? I was there. I, I've been there many times, and, and I'm sure we'll be there again. But the other day I was leaving work. It was um, after 5 o'clock on, on Friday, and I was getting up on the 49. I was coming down the highway. And, uh, I noticed something you usually don't see around here, especially on 49, but the traffic was backed up. There was a wreck that had taken place up here on the uh, Kings Highway area of 49, and, and you could see all the cars that were were backing up, and you know, it's always fun to pass people who are backed up on the other side and to think, well, I'm glad I'm not one of you. I'm glad I'm not in that uh, traffic jam. Well, as I got farther down to uh, the south part of 49 where I get off at uh, 31, 32 uh, to be able to cut towards uh, home, I noticed that the, the cars were all backed up as well. In fact, you, you could not get on the, uh, the loop and go west. They had it completely shut off. And I could see the sirens and I could tell something wasn't right. It wasn't until yesterday that I realized that that was a, uh, a car crash, a, a fatality was involved, uh, probably 15 to 30 minutes before I, I had passed that. But it had all the cars backed up all the way over to uh, Ellerby and, and even beyond that. People were just, because of the Labor Day traffic and because of the wreck and Everything else, it was just total chaos. But you see, I had a date. It was date night, and uh, I was trying to get home and trying to run some errands and trying to do some things. And I, I'm not going to blame this on Jenny. But <laughs> as I was, I was rushing, trying to get home, I, I just thought, uh, okay, I'm going to be late, and, and this isn't going to work out. And I saw all the people jammed up. And I, as I was trying to get off on the Ellerby Road, the right-hand lane, the passing lane, was open. And uh, all of a sudden, as, as everybody was looking around, trying to see where the traffic was going, this guy on, on a Harley comes riding by with his uh, girlfriend on the back or wife. I, I don't know exactly who she was, but she was hanging on for dear life. As he was cutting across, going around, and I thought, you know, that's why you ride a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, so you can just power past everybody. And then all of a sudden, you can predict what happened, right? All of a sudden, cars started to nose out into that right-hand lane, and then sure enough, one car goes past, and another one, and then my car just, you know, all of a sudden takes <laughs> off and goes out there. I'm thinking, okay, I don't need to wait in line. I, I mean, I, I'm going to be turning right up here. There's, there's no reason. I need to sit here behind all of these people who are stupid enough to be turning left up here. I'm going to go, and I'm just going to go around them. And as I started to do that, I pulled out and started going along, looking back, thinking, you know, suckers, driving along. <laughs> Just as soon as I got around the bend, I saw the lights going off. But luckily, they weren't behind me. They were ahead of me. As I got up closer, we were all trying to pull back into the lane. <laughs> and uh, like nothing had ever happened, I uh, pulled around, and I saw that they had, the, the policeman had stopped the uh, motorcyclist, and I uh, was giving him a ticket. Obviously, was not very happy with him. And really, all of us should have gotten that ticket. It just reminded me, and a, a bit of conviction as I was reading the text again that morning, about our selfishness and our sense of pride and our sense of place and position. Who am I? 
I mean, really, who do we think that we are? And why do we act the way that we do sometimes? It comes back to our sense of ego, pride, and thinking that we ought to be in line ahead of other people, and that we really have a place, and we have a right, and we have a privilege before other people, when really our place is at the back of the line. And that's how Jesus lived his life. I think if we're ever going to get a handle on this humility thing, we need to get a handle on it from within. We need to recognize who we really are. Uh, psychiatrists or psychologists, spiritual directors, others will tell us that there are really two selves. Inside of you there are two selves. And, and within uh, Jewish contemplative thought, there, there has been this description about uh, they describe it as two dogs. If you have two dogs, which one is going to get the bigger, to become the biggest dog? The one that you feed the most. And out of your two selves, which one is going to get the biggest? Your true self or your false self? Well, your true self is who God has made you to be. It is that, that part of you that is eternal, the, the God, uh, the, that part of you that God has brought into this world and, and designed for all of eternity. But then there is that false self. Paul talks about the old self and the new self. And that false sense of self is that part of us that we tend to feed the most, don't we? We, want, we come into this world wanting for things. And then we turn into the kind of people that demand the things. We try to feed ourselves with all kinds of things to feed our hungry appetites. We tend not to look at other people and look at their needs and look at the things that uh, that God wants us to share with them, we just look at ourselves and we think about the position and the place that we need for ourselves. But we really need to get to that place of understanding who we truly are. You can fool yourself in life, can't you? You can tell yourself that you, uh, you really need this and you need that and this belongs to you. and all. You can tell yourself all kinds of things. And we do that. We do it every time we go to the store. We do it every time we're uh, approached with marketing and commercials and all of that. In fact, those things help us feed our false sense of self. But Jesus has given us, given us a way to be able to counter that. How does that look at, at work, when you go to work? How does this sense of, of humility and pride and arrogance and, and, and all of these things that we tie into our false sense of self, how does that play itself out at work? What happens all the time? We uh, complain about others. Uh, we try to do whatever we can, push people aside to be able to either get a promotion or get a raise or to get some, some sort of recognition. But it's amazing what happens. And it's amazing what we can do when we don't worry about who gets the credit. Right? Doesn't it work that way at work? People get into your business or they begin to take things from you or begin to, to take your work and make it their own and make it look like they accomplished something. And, and we, we just get completely irritated by that. It can develop bitterness and rage and anger and all kinds of problems can happen. In fact, when people go back to work on Tuesday, there will be all kinds of strife and anxiety and problems that are in workplaces and boardrooms. That's just the way our world works. But what would it look like if you, a follower of Jesus Christ, began to emulate, began to take those things that he has taught you about humility and put them into practice at your workplace? What would it look like? 
What did it look like when you came in and you said, I'm going to take the, the place of the least amount of honor, and I'm going to just be quiet. I'm going to do what God's called me to do, and I'm going to serve in that way. What would it look like in our relationships if we thought about other people and thought about their needs first? I've mentioned before the, the book that is, uh, I think, one of the best books about marriage or about relationships, and it's uh, Dr. Willard Harley's book, His Needs, Her Needs. And in this book, he uh, describes really a top five list for men and for women. And most of the problems that take place in relationships uh, center around the, the lack of understanding about other people's needs. We just think about our needs. Well, I need this and I need that in, in this relationship and, and I expect this and this ought to be the way it is. And we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble by meeting our own needs instead of meeting our spouse's needs. That happens in friendships too. And so the idea is that you make a list and it's, it's a list that changes, but you make a list of the top five needs of your spouse or your friend. What are the top five needs? Can you even think of them? It's fun to do this in marital counseling because it, it's always wrong. <laughs> Guys usually get it all wrong, and actually women do this as well. They tend to project what they think their husband's needs would be when the husband says, no, that's not it at all. But you have to come to this understanding that other people's needs are more important or equally as important as yours are. And it's a matter of taking the posture of a servant and being willing to serve other people. Taking your place at the less important part of the table and allowing others to sit in other places. What about in a church setting? And maybe with a church, uh, just if you think about it in the sense of a church at large or the church as a body, the reason the church has gotten itself into so many problems and, and, and really developed a negative reputation for itself throughout the years is because the church has tended to serve itself instead of serving the community. Oh, I mean, the talk is we're going to serve the community, we're going... Uh, to do this and to do that, yet it's usually about what can you do for the church. But what Jesus taught the disciples is that the church is a body. And he was trying to prepare them because his body was going to be leaving the world and he wanted to leave the body of Christ continuing to do work in the world. But he knew that that body had to take its place at the wrong end of the table, which was really the right end of the table that it was a place of service. And as uh, Paul writes in, in Philippians, he reminds us about the humility of Christ, that, that Christ came into this world as a servant, to serve, not to be served. Jesus would say the same thing. The Son of Man comes to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. And so as a body of Christ, we ought to see ourselves as a servant, body in this neighborhood and in this world. And as we come up on our third year anniversary, how important is it for us as we start dreaming about year four and year five and, and the years ahead that we continue to remember that we are here to serve, not to be served. We are here to give, not to be given to. We are here to be the body of Christ. But that also affects our relationships with each other inside the church. Most churches have problems because the, the members are at odds with one another. It could be about the color of the carpet. 
and I don't even think we've cared too much about the carpet in here. Um, but we, if, if we ever did change the carpet, we might have a fight about the color of the carpet. Should it be mustard yellow uh, or goldenrod, or should it be blood of Christ red or heavenly blue? I mean, what should it be? We'd probably get in a fight about that. But if, even if we did, we would need to understand it's not about our needs, it's about what I want or what uh, a particular group wants. It, it's about giving our service to other people and humbling ourselves so that we could be exalted. When a part of the body of Christ begins to serve in a way that says, hey, everybody, look at me. Look what I'm doing. And, and I ought to get recognition and praise. Then, as Paul mentions, we've missed it. Because other parts of the body are doing just as much work. Even though they are not seen, they are just as critical to the mission of that body than anyone else. These words of humility continue and they guide and direct us. I saw another movie. In fact, I just saw it this past weekend. And, and I was afraid that it was a, a chick flick, um, which uh, Jenny was, was willing to bend with me on jobs. In fact, she really wanted to, to see that as well. But uh, it was instead of watching The uh, Butler. Anybody seen The Butler? Uh, it, it's a, a great movie by uh, Lee Daniels. And it's about... A butler uh, who comes to serve in the White House. In fact, I think he's ended up serving uh, about 34 years in the White House. And it, it starts with him on, uh, in the movie at least, in the setting is in Macon, Georgia. He is on a, uh, a farm, a cotton farm, and he witnesses his mother being taken away by the, uh, the farm owner, the plantation owner, and he takes his mother out into the barn and rapes her. He is deeply disturbed by this, and so he says something to his dad as his mother, I mean, as, as the, the farmer's coming back out of the barn, he sees him, and um, he, his father does say something to him, just utters something to him. The farmer turns around, shoots him, kills him. He sees his father die. It takes you from there all the way until he, uh, he is serving under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. He started with Dwight and Eisenhower and went all the way up through Ronald Reagan. And it just is a, uh, a journey through his life and of how he is serving other people. At the very uh, end of his career, he is serving under uh, President Reagan. And, and there's this conversation that he has with uh, Nancy Reagan. Uh, Nancy Reagan comes out and talks to him and, and talks to him about coming and, and uh, being at the meal. He says, of course I'm going to be there at the meal. Uh, the president always wants me to be the one who is serving him at the meal. She says, no, no. Not, not for you to be the servant. I want you to come and to be served. You and your wife to come and to be served at this White House dinner. And it just boggles his mind because he's never thought of himself in that way. He's always been a man of humility, always taking his place as a place of a servant at the table, not as a leader and not as a friend of a leader. And so you see him just dealing with the uh, discomfort of being there. What you see in his life is greatness. Even more greatness than you would see in Steve Jobs' life. And the key to his being great was his willingness and his way of service. As we think about what it means to be humble in our world today, hear these words again. For all who exalt, <coughs> exalt themselves will be humbled 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for the example and the witness of Jesus Christ, whom you sent into this world to serve, not to be served. You sent him into this world to a cross and not to a throne. You sent him into this world to wash feet rather than to have his own feet washed. Help us as we go into this next week as members of this church, as citizens of this city, as employees at work, that we would reflect the humility of Christ in all that we do